Hi, it's Daniel, host of Chasing Enlightenment. We're so thankful for all the listens and feedback we've received on the show so far. We're a completely independent production, so we really do rely on listener support and word of mouth. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with friends and family who might be interested too, and please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to make a donation to help offset our production costs, visit chasingenlightenment.net slash support. Thanks again for listening and for supporting us. What you are about to hear may include disturbing descriptions of sexual or physical abuse, or may contain coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. From the day I had that meeting with John up until now, and that was almost 42 years ago, and God knows how long I have left to live on the earth, I don't know, I mean... The years are getting shorter, and I'm getting older. But I will say this much. That experience I had with John is priceless, was priceless. And I'm extremely grateful to to the living God, if you want to call it that, or to the Lords of Fate, or whatever you want to call it, to life itself, for having been given that opportunity to sit in front of a man and to feel what I felt, that Daniel has changed my life, you know? And when I'm on my deathbed, at least I could say in my last thought, my whole existence in this entire world, it doesn't matter much money you got, how many houses you you own, how many books you've written, how many, the biggest and foremost, most important thing about my particular life was that I met such a man You're hearing the voice of Joseph C., who was involved with the Students of Light for a few years as a young man. He asked us not to use his full surname, for reasons you'll hear about more in a later episode. Joseph told us that, in the late 1970s, he was seeking an explanation for an intense religious experience that he'd had as a teenager. A friend recommended that he meet with John Hainis, leader of the Students of Light. So the two friends took a trip to Toronto. She brought me to a health food store and... uh introduced me to uh, uh, a very fine man uh, who was owner of the health food store. And, and as she introduced me to him, he was kind of looking at me, not in a funny way, but in an odd way. Uh, he would look above my head. He would look on the side of my head. He would look on the periphery of my physical body, extending, uh, I don't know, maybe a few feet out of my body, away from my body, I mean. And that was his way of coming to know me, but a very gentle, humble man, uh, extremely humble. After this first meeting, Joseph didn't know exactly what to make of John or his group of followers. But his friend encouraged him to write to John and to request a private meeting. He did so and was invited to meet with John in his Junction neighborhood apartment. Upon uh, entering his little modest apartment, uh, um, he sat in front of me, and I sat down, and, and this was where I uh, had the biggest and uh, most greatest experience of my life that I will never forget, and I'll bring it with me till the day I die. John had said to me, in words, in, in, from his lips, what can I do for you? Well, I didn't answer 
in words, but I said in my mind, who are you? What are you? I said it in my mind. And and what the response I got, uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's too unbelievable to even conceive. But anyway, I started to feel this great electricity flowing through me from head to toe. And it was so powerful. And there was a vibe to this electricity, though. It was it was a feeling of love. Uh, it would be the equivalent of um, if Christ appeared in front of you right now, Dan, and you could feel his love and his vibration. And, and then he left. What would come out of this experience? You'd be saying to yourself, Oh my God, I feel so amazingly great. I feel so happy. What I felt coming from that man could not have come from a normal person. Never, ever, ever. And the next thing I know, it felt like maybe five minutes, but it was actually about 30 seconds. Then he looked at me and said, with his not with his mind, but with his mouth, by words. Is there anything else you want to know? And I thought, oh my God, advanced men actually do exist. I've had the problems. This is all being assimilated on the spot, on the spot, digested on the spot. And, and the proof is on the spot. Uh, people like this actually do exist. Joseph was involved with the Students of Light for only a brief time in the group's earlier years. But he says his experience meeting John left a powerful impression on him, one that lasts to this day. I wish I could choose the right words to describe what I'm trying to say. It's just, uh, as you can see, I'm kind of overwhelmed still after all these decades about this meeting I had with John. And I think I always will, Dan. It's just the effect it had on me. It's the effects it had on me. If merely being in John's presence was really so powerful, it's not difficult to see why someone might be tempted to drop everything and follow him. Yet, the way many other former followers describe John is in stark opposition to Joseph's descriptions. He was a very egotistical man, but not overtly. He would hide it well, and he was very manipulative. He really enjoyed manipulating people, and he really enjoyed the power that he had. Um, I mean, this fucking guy... He's destroyed all kinds of people's lives. It's terrible. Since John passed away in 2012, all we're left with to try to understand him as a person are the words of those who knew him. But as the descriptions you just heard make clear, the picture of John that emerges is complicated. In this episode, we do our best to piece together what we do know about John. We'll cover what we know of his early life, then trace the founding and early leadership of the Students of Light. You'll hear how, by the time he solidified himself as the religious leader of several hundred followers, John had become the sole authority in those followers' lives, to the point that they had begun to view him as their divinely ordained leader. You're listening to Chasing Enlightenment, Episode 3, The Leader.
John Haynes was born sometime in the 1930s, though we don't know his exact date of birth. Various former members have said that he grew up somewhere on the Canadian prairies, perhaps Saskatchewan. Public records from the early 20th century show multiple Haynes families living in prairie provinces, most working as farmers, so that may very well have been the context in which John grew up. We've also heard that at some point in his earlier life, John served in the military, perhaps being deployed somewhere overseas during World War II. We have heard consistent descriptions of John's physical appearance as an adult. We're told he comported himself in a way that was quite reserved and conservative, both in the way he spoke and the way he dressed. He always had this very soft voice. He would never really get angry or raise his voice. And he was always dressed sort of like, we'll put it this way, it was never blue jeans and a t-shirt. It was, you know, khaki pants, light blue shirts, sort of unassuming. And he was a man of small stature. He wore his pants up just under his ribs. You know that look? Big comb over, uh, glasses. He looked like the ultimate dork. A little um, uh, checked shirt, short sleeve checked shirt, uh, buttoned up right to his neck. And um, yeah, weird little guy. That was the voice of Cynthia Watson. She was a student of light for some years in the 70s and 80s. And just before Cynthia, you heard the words of another former member, who we'll refer to as Andrew. Andrew requested we keep his identity anonymous, because in the past, he's acted as a resource for individuals seeking to transition out of their lives in the group, something he hopes to do again in the future. You're therefore hearing his words read by a voice actor. Both Cynthia and Andrew had a lot to tell us about John and his leadership of the Students of Light, so you'll hear from both of them throughout this episode. By the 1960s, now aged somewhere in his 30s, John had moved to Toronto. He was working as an accountant for a large company, perhaps in financial services or oil and gas. That corporate line of work may not sound becoming of a future spiritual guru. But at the same time, John was also actively dabbling in alternative religious and occult traditions. Former group members say that John picked up inspirations for his own group from these earlier movements. He was very um, involved with sort of that early New Age stuff, like the Theosophical Society and all that. And um, Madame Blavatsky, that shit. Look that up. Very important. Yeah. The Theosophical Society was founded in 1875 by a Russian spiritualist named Helena Blavatsky. Their teachings overlap significantly with what John eventually preached to the Students of Light. Theosophy teaches that there's a universal mystical truth shared by all religions, and it aims to unite Western and Eastern religious teachings. Along similar lines, John eventually incorporated elements of various traditions into the Students of Light, of Christianity, such as a fixation on Jesus, as well as Eastern religious practices like meditation, and more New Age religious practices like aura balancing. Cynthia also says that John was involved with the Rosicrucians, another movement that combines the teachings of various traditions, Western, Eastern, and New Age. Rosicrucians also aim to bring themselves into close contact with a divine force that flows through all of existence. This sounds strikingly similar to John's eventual teachings about the light, the universal benevolent force involved in many of the Students of Light's practices. In the 1960s, John encountered one spiritual leader who greatly impacted his later teachings, a woman named Neva Dell Hunter. Neva Dell is a prominent figure in 20th century New Age thought. She claimed to be a medium who could channel the spirits of deceased spiritual masters, 
who would speak through her while she was in a trance state. Through her channeling, Neva claims to have learned the method of aura balancing, which she pioneered and taught to others. In the 1960s, John visited Neva Dell at her spiritual center in New Mexico. Her teachings clearly made an impression on him, as he would soon take up her method of aura balancing as one of the Students of Light's main practices. By the early 70s, John was living in the Junction neighborhood and running his Four Seasons health food store. Now, the late 60s and early 70s saw an explosion of new religious movements. Many of these grew out of 60s counterculture, with its rejection of traditional politics and religion and its embrace of alternative lifestyles. This was the era of the so-called Jesus freaks, young people often interested in blending Christianity with hippie ideals or alternative spirituality. I think to understand it, you really got to put the times in context. It was early to mid-70s, you're going into that sort of new age movement, vitamins, vegetarianism, all this sort of thing was starting to take off. It was on the tail end of the hippie movement, the late 60s, early 70s. John's teachings fit right into this era of interest in self-enlightenment. He was easily able to find young people interested in following a man who was peddling notions like the pure white light of the Christ, aura balancing, and reincarnation, mixing them with a focus on holistic health and vegetarianism. John quickly found his right-hand man, a young follower in his early 20s named Don Colmar. John introduced Don to aura balancing, and he was quite taken with this new spiritual technique. Together, they began offering balances to people they knew in Canada and the eastern U.S. During these early balances, many people describe having tremendous spiritual experiences, which led them to want to devote themselves to learning from John. Around 1973, John brought together a group of about 30 people who were interested in founding a spiritual school dedicated to spreading the light through techniques like aura balancing. It was around this initial group of followers that the Students of Light formed. Together, they opened the vegetarian restaurant to fund the group and to support their mission to bring the light to everyone they interacted with. At first, the group continued to offer aura balances to the public. Though they were looking for new people to join, they didn't do any kind of forceful evangelizing. Instead, they'd simply offer those who responded positively a chance to join up. They used to do um, a, like a, a traveling show. They would they would travel around, go down to the states, and get people balanced. It wasn't like a recruitment, so to speak. It was more just taking it around, and if people liked it, and a lot of people did. Many people found the prospect of joining irresistible, given the intensity of the spiritual experiences they had during their balances. In these early years, the group's organization and John's leadership were fairly loose, and John didn't exert a ton of control over people's day-to-day -day lives. Using money donated by new members, the group had been purchasing residential properties in the Junction neighborhood, with many members moving in and paying relatively cheap rent. But many also still lived outside Toronto, around the U.S. and Canada. Group members would go on long road trips to administer balances to those living afar, or remote members would travel to Toronto for balances. Still, Andrew says that as the group's size began to grow in the mid-70s, it became clear just how absolutely devoted John's followers were. Many began to closely follow John's instructions about their daily routines, about matters from what to eat to what sleep schedule to follow. We gotta do what John tells us. We gotta do this, we gotta do that. Oh, and we got to eat the food John recommends, because that's what's healthy. Without having met him, it's difficult to figure out exactly what it was about John as a person that made him such an irresistible leader. But as with many groups like the Students of Light, 
It likely came down in part to facts about John's personality. As sociologist Lauren Dawson tells us, leaders of such groups often have an uncanny ability to interact with people in ways that make them feel the leader has extraordinary power or authority. And that this means that they have a capacity to sort of exude a power or influence over people, right? Just by virtue of their own personality. This might be as simple as the ability to make the right kinds of facial expressions or eye contact. It's not what you're saying, it's how you're saying it and the expression on your face and what your eyes are doing, etc. So something, something as simple as looking directly into someone's eyes, right? And looking into someone's eyes seemingly quite intensely. Well, it's very, very common report that these charismatic leaders instinctively or through a bit of training uh, understood the importance of things like FaceTime. Along these lines, there is one fact about John's personality that multiple former followers have highlighted, that John was very good at reading people. He was very good at understanding and attempting to push people's levers, and understanding what made them tick. When John encountered someone on a spiritual quest, he could sense this and say just the kinds of things they wanted to hear, or make just the right promises about what they'd find if they joined his group. In combination with the intense experiences people had during their first aura balances, this might explain how John was able to draw in so many followers. As many former members tell it, John's ability to gather such a large following, all with such extreme loyalty, quickly began to feed his ego and desire for power. He loved having power over people's lives. Around the late 70s, John had gathered several hundred followers. He then began to implement changes to his instructions and teachings, changes which resulted in the group even more fully overtaking people's day-to-day lives. First, John decided it would be mandatory for group members to live in Toronto, in close proximity to the Junction neighborhood. This would allow them to have regular aura balances, rather than living afar and waiting for balances to be brought to them. He instructed his followers, many of whom still lived in the U.S. or Western Canada, to give up their former lives and move nearby. And a lot of people um, came up, moved up, like people with great jobs, professors and um doctors and all kind of people and then they bring their parents and um it was really you know it shocked me actually that people would leave their wonderful lives many of these group members devoted themselves to working in students of light owned businesses and all attended regular meditation sessions had their auras balanced regularly and participated in other members balances restaurant um aura balancing and meditation. That was your life. Yeah. You had to only associate with group people. There was every Sunday, the Sunday meditations. You had to go to the ore balancing. It was intense. They'd keep turning up the dial. There was always a daily routine. And you had to meditate daily. John then began preaching that he alone was the source and keeper of the light. That without him, his followers would be unable to achieve closer unity with the light or receive its protection. His followers were instructed to be constantly vigilant against dark forces that might try to harm them. He told them they couldn't take naps, since their consciousness was especially vulnerable to dark forces while they slept. And they were instructed to constantly monitor and suppress any negative thoughts about John or the group that might creep into their minds. You were told you had to forgive yourself for things, for thinking bad thoughts. If you thought negative thoughts about John Hainis or of the group, you were immediately taught to block that. You say... Oh, I forgive myself for thinking bad thoughts about the group or John Haynes, because this is the darkness coming in me. These are not valid criticisms. Group members' movements and social interactions also became tightly controlled. John told them they couldn't leave Toronto without his permission, lest they be outside the protection of the light. 
All romantic relationships had to be approved by John, who would deem a couple's union divinely ordained before they could be married. Families were told to closely watch one another and to report any negative comments about the group that they overheard, which fostered an air of paranoia even between close family members. And John's followers were told to cut off relationships with friends and family outside the group and to shun people who chose to leave. They used the whole shunning process, like, um, you know, when you left, you were bad, you were evil. John also instructed his followers to funnel more and more money into the group. Oh yeah, it was, there was fundraising every week. Demand for money, demand for money. And of course, I was working at the restaurant and they were paying me about $3 an hour. So I never gave them a cent. Uh, but the people with money, there was businessmen and, uh, like I say, professors and doctors and stuff. They gave a lot of money. While group members were required to undergo regular aura balances, they were also required to make sizable donations to John in return for these balances. Andrew says that this was all paid in cash under the table. John Haynes pocketed a ton of cash. He was being paid for the aura balancing in cash. None of this was ever reported or recorded. And this is like hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years. The balances and these meetings with John Haynes. The donations went straight into Hainis's pocket, never recorded. So, by the late 70s, John had brought most of his followers to Toronto, under rules that ensured they spent their day-to-day -day lives devoted to the group and to him, the master of the light. Clearly, many of John's followers were content to give up their former lives and place all of their trust in him. But, with such absolute devotion, also comes certain dangers. John had managed to supplant his followers' trust in institutions other than himself and the Students of Light, preaching that he should be trusted above any other authority. He taught, for example, that his followers were to reject mainstream medicine when they were sick, opting instead for aura balancing and John's preferred ideas about holistic health. They did not believe in real medicine at all. There certainly were, over the years of the group, instances where people would forgo traditional medical treatment or normal medical treatment for these holistic, you know, nonsense, basically. Some examples of this come from former group member Martin Bevlander, to whom Cynthia was married while the two were in the group. We weren't able to speak with Martin directly because his health is now in serious decline. But he and Cynthia remain close, and she shared with us a box of notes that Martin wrote during his time in the group in the 70s and 80s. Martin had been dealing with certain physical ailments for many years, including chronic digestive problems. Rather than seek conventional medical help, he was encouraged to try to identify underlying spiritual causes of his afflictions. This involved reciting prayers like this one found in Martin's notes. In the name of the Father, I now call forth the consciousness of my bowels for the purpose of questioning. Bowels, I have been uncomfortable due to your lack of proper functioning as far back as I can remember. I am your master, as I am master of this physical body, and I need to have you function properly to carry away the waste matter of the food I eat daily. My question to you is this. Why have you not served me as a properly functioning bowel should all these years? Now, it's easy to brush off practices like this as silly and ridiculous when they just involve praying to one's bowels. But we've heard from multiple former group members about an even more troubling time when John instructed a follower not to access mainstream medicine. This was a woman named Vicky who was suffering from the autoimmune disease lupus. Her story is a tragic one. There was a, a, a girl named Vicky. She had lupus. She had SLE, like lupus, which is normally a treatable condition. And the group was saying, oh, she's not sick. She doesn't need medical care. She died. 
They wouldn't take her to the hospital. It was bad. Bad news. Andrew claims that around the time Vicky got sick, she'd been expressing doubts about the group and was considering leaving. On this basis, John claimed that Vicky's physical illness stemmed from a spiritual rebellion, which she was personally undertaking against the group's authority. And the way it was portrayed in the group, Vicky was quote-unquote in a spiritual rebellion. And this is the reason why she was ill. John insisted that Vicky didn't need conventional medicine, and that instead she should be treated with various group-approved practices. It was meditation, ore balancing, vitamins, natural foods, all this holistic stuff. Andrew also says that John ordered that Vicky be essentially isolated in her home and cut off from her family, many of whom weren't even aware of how seriously ill she was. Vicky was basically sequestered away by the group, was not allowed to have any contact with outside people, and of course it was this whole thing of her being in a spiritual rebellion, and if she got support from her parents, she was going to die. Just the fact that she was sequestered from her family and from her sister and from her friends for a good year and a half, for two years, it amounts to emotional and psychological abuse. It was completely unnecessary. Should have been able to... Well, if she was going to die, she should have been allowed to pass away with her family and her friends all around and not alone. Vicky suffered through her illness for several years, allegedly without proper medical or emotional support. Eventually, she passed away in June of 1980. The consensus among many of John's former followers is that, at the group's beginnings, he was a humble man genuinely trying to do good. But after amassing so many followers, willing to believe that he was the ultimate bearer of the light, it seems John's leadership and the group's dynamic quickly changed for the worse, becoming dangerous and cult-like. And he fancied himself as, a, you know, his ego and his, um, you know, his ego got bigger and bigger and bigger, you know. That whole guru complex, the guru syndrome, uh, the more adoration he got, the bigger his ego got. Um, I would say he changed quite a lot from being fairly humble, sort of spiritual leader to being, well, losing it completely. And um, yeah, I think he turned into a bad man. Perhaps the most striking example of John's escalating ego and guru complex came soon after John had finished solidifying his authoritarian position over the group. Sometime around 1979, John began proclaiming to his followers that he was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. According to Robert Pollock and his book about the group called 25 Years with Jesus, John said he'd first heard this claim in the 60s from Neva Del Hunter, the medium in New Mexico who taught him to perform aura balances. This was why, throughout the 1970s, John had been sending his followers to visit Nivadel so she could channel information about their past lives too. He says that he'd thought that many of his followers' past lives had also taken place at the time of Jesus, and he wanted Nivadel to confirm this. Robert says she did just that, telling group members that they'd been Jesus' apostles and other biblical figures. John then began to tell his followers that, as the reincarnation of Jesus, He'd gathered them together in Toronto to continue the mission they'd started 2,000 years ago. It's hard to say whether John really believed all these grand claims that he was preaching about himself and his group of followers. What it really came down to is, John Haynes was a very egotistical man, and it was all about him. And I don't know if it was a delusion, or if he believed it at times, or if it was a sales pitch. Or, if he honestly believed it, that I don't really know. Still, it's clear that many of John's followers were inspired by his new revelations about their shared past lives together, 
After learning this, many reaffirmed their mission to bring spiritual enlightenment to humanity, now believing that they were following Jesus himself. But despite this mission to bring the light to the world, the decades that followed saw the group become increasingly more insular. Rather than offering aura balances to the public to entice new members, they largely stopped accepting new members altogether now that everyone was living in close quarters around the junction. You know, I mean, it wasn't like they wanted more people in the group. Once all the, the you know, devoted disciples had moved up and, you know, got ensconced in the whole thing, then nobody else was welcome. They didn't want more people. It was just just an exclusive little group. The group still had public-facing enterprises with their businesses in the junction, but they didn't make public the fact that behind these businesses was a spiritual sect who claimed to follow Jesus incarnate. Instead, they continued their spiritual practices in secret. In our next episode, you'll hear about how these practices became more intense over the next several decades, as group leadership sought a tighter grip on the lives of the followers who had at one time, freely joined their mission. Chasing Enlightenment was written and narrated by Daniel Monroe. Audio production and editing by Carolyn Smiley. Additional research and voiceovers by Robert Monroe. Artwork and web design by Megan Hilario. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. You can find more information about the show and ways to support us at ChasingEnlightenment.net. Contact us at ChasingEnlightenment at gmail.com. For mental health support in Canada, visit wellnesstogether.ca or text 686868 for immediate help. Those seeking to leave abusive relationships can visit endingviolencecanada.org.